Matthew 24 and 25. What do these people have in common? Martin Luther, Christopher Columbus, John Wesley, Isaac Newton, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and Nostradamus. What do they all have in common? Deb got it right in the first service, so she's going to try again in the second service. Come on, Deb, tell us. Right. They all made a prediction about when the coming of Christ would be. They're one of a number. If you look on the, uh, in the research, there's quite a lot of people in different times that have predicted when the world would end, when Jesus would return. And the closest of that lot was uh, Isaac Newton, who predicted uh, 2016. Uh, well, that came and went, so uh, we're still here. And some of these folks are still trying to explain why their numbers didn't quite work the first time around. But uh, the idea and the question of when the world ends and what's going to happen at the ending of the world, how is it all going to wrap up, if it does wrap up at all, these are questions that have been sort of in the church for years and years and years. But they're actually increasingly also in the world. In a world where we actually can destroy ourselves, and we know we can now, we could destroy this world if we went about things the wrong way. People are questioning what the future looks like. Possibly like never before. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for us as a church to be able to speak into those things. But what do we have to say? What does Jesus tell us about what's going to happen at the end? And here we are in the, what's called the Passion Week. The week before, between when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and when he's crucified on the cross on the Good Friday. This is all happens, these Matthew chapters all happen in that week. It's actually an awful lot of information that comes to us through the Gospels out of that week. You look at the other Gospels. There's a whole load of chapters in John alone, what Jesus said in that week. Very important. Whatever else happened with the disciples previously in Jesus, if you read the Gospels, they understood that when Jesus got to speak in that last week, like every word was like gold to them. Uh, And they wanted to make sure it was passed on and all that happened to us. And so here we are, Matthew 24, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem, he's overturned things in the temple, he's spoken out against the Pharisees and the scribes, if you remember that, the seven woes and a wonder we talked about last week, and he's finished off that in Matthew 23, uh, talking about the fact that he's going to leave the house desolate, and he's going to leave the place, and then the very next verse at the beginning of 24, Jesus actually leaves the temple. And he leaves the temple and he goes up onto the Mount of Olives and the disciples gather around him. And these next two chapters are to the disciples. The last one was really towards the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. But these two is to the disciples. And they have a question for him because they're listening to what he's saying. And they're saying, well, when will these things be? They already know that Jesus is going to die. Now they finally got it. He's told them three times already in Matthew. Finally seems to be sinking in. He's going to die. He's going to leave them. But if he's the true Messiah, then he must come back to rule and to reign. So when is he going to come back and do that? And that's their question. And what are the signs before you're returning? And how will it all happen? And so in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus begins to unpack a little bit about what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't tell us everything. He just gives us the bits and pieces that presumably his father told him to say by the Holy Spirit. And these have been recorded for us by Matthew. And so we're going to look at them today. 
And they kind of come in two parts. The first part is that Jesus talks about what is going to happen when he returns. That's in the first parts of Matthew 24. And then the end of Matthew 24 and into 25, Jesus gives us five stories, five parables, five illustrations that tell his disciples how they need to prepare and be ready for Jesus coming back. So what I'm going to do today, I'm going to give a very brief summary of what Jesus said about what is going to happen. And we're going to spend most of our morning talking about those five stories and illustrations about how we can prepare our own hearts for Jesus coming back. So first of all, what is going to happen? And one of the things we need to understand, whenever we read prophecy in Scripture, whether it comes from Jesus or it's in the book of Revelation or Thessalonians or some of these other books that talk about what is going to happen in the future, or the Old Testament books in Daniel and Ezekiel, we have to understand that there are often different timelines that are being spoken of at the same time. In other words, when Jesus is speaking here, he's actually speaking about two events, not one. He's speaking about the event that I mentioned last week that was going to happen a few years later when Titus was going to bring his armies from Rome to the gates of Jerusalem and they were going to have a four-year siege, break down uh, the gates, march into Jerusalem at the trumpet sounds and whatever and they were going to destroy Jerusalem. And some of what Jesus says in this chapter actually came true at that moment in time. For instance, when Jesus talks about when this happens, when things are happening before the end comes, you need to get a hold of your children and run for the hills. Well, that's exactly what happened. Because was Titus was marching towards Jerusalem, they got the families together and, and I guess you know the, the Pharisees and those folks were sort of shoring up the, the city to defend it and they defended it for four years, which was quite incredible. But the, the families, they, they took them up into the hills and they literally ran into the hills with the children to get away from the advancing army. So we have to understand that some of the things you read have already happened. And then there are other things which are for when Jesus comes back. And there are some things that are true for both. So you can't just read the whole thing and say all of these things are going to happen before Jesus came back because some of them have happened already. So that's why it's good to know our history and the context in which Jesus is speaking here. But there are some truths in here that regardless of what he's talking about, we know it is certainly talking about the end time when Jesus returns. What are those truths? Well, we can unpack a few of those for you. Let me just do that quickly. There is going to be an end to history. This is all going to come to an end. But it won't be because of a nuclear holocaust that destroys us all. And it won't be because of an environmental blow up that destroys our world. Those things may happen in different times in different ways. But the world is not going to end until Jesus comes back. That is the ending. We cannot know when it's going to happen. Jesus is very clear about that. So these folks that predict dates and times, Jesus is quite clear. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. Jesus says concerning the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. That's in Matthew 24, 36. We can't know when it's going to happen, but we can know the signs of the times. You can read them for yourselves. Remembering that some of them have already happened, some of them are still to happen. But whatever those signs might be, you're not going to miss it when it happens. Everybody will know. 
For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 24, 27. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 24, verse 30. The summation of all things is not about you or me. It's not about the, the uh, rulers of our world or the nations of our world, who's the greatest, who's the least, whatever. The summation of all things is about the king of glory who rules in heaven and is going to bring that rulership down into our time and space and bring everything to closure. It is all about Jesus Christ. And everything is ultimately in the control of the Father. When you read these chapters, you've got to take a step back. Because you can get all worked up about all the stuff that's happening in there. But if you take a step back, you realize what Jesus is saying is, God knows what's happening. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows when it's all going to finish. He knows what's going to happen in between. He is in control of what's going on. This world is not snowballing out of control into some great disaster. God is controlling everything that's going to happen into our future and now. Whether he authors it or allows it, whatever your theology might be, God is over control of what's happening and he's going to bring it to end at the right time when he decides. What we do know is that it won't happen until the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has been preached to the ends of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And you can think about that. Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the top of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple and all the rest. And he's speaking to a few people and he's saying, you do realize this gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And I don't know what they understand as the ends of the earth. But it's 2,000 years later and it's still going to the ends of the earth. But if you are watching what's going on, this could all happen very quickly in our day and age. In our generation, the gospel could go to every tribe and nation in the world. And the sobering fact that you can't get past in everything that Jesus says here is that there is going to be a separation at the end. Not everybody goes to heaven. Whatever the world says. Not Everybody goes to heaven. There is a separation. And Jesus unpacks that for us. And it's actually quite sobering. Wow. Because the sum of all things is going to be about Jesus. And the issue that decides whether we're going to heaven for eternal life or we're going to hell and eternal separation from God is what we do with Jesus. That's the issue. You can be the greatest sinner on the earth. But if you've made your peace with God through Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. You could think you're the most righteous person on the earth. But if you have not made your peace with God through Jesus Christ, you are not going to heaven. There is only one way. There is only one door. There is only one name whereby we must be saved. And that is Jesus. There is no other way. So how can we prepare for the end of all things? The great and final day of the Lord. Jesus gives us these five parables and illustrations to help us prepare. And we're just going to go through them this morning. 
Some of them I'll read and you'll see the scriptures in the English Standard Version behind. Some of which I'll just tell you the story as we go. We don't have time to read them all. You can take them away and read them and you'll get a chance in cell group this week to look at them as well if you're going through the cell outline notes. So the first story is this. And the theme of the story, every one of these has one theme of a story. Most of Jesus' parables have one point. People like to find a lot of different points in them, but most of them just have one point. That's why Jesus is telling the story. And so in this particular story, the point is this. Be alert. Be alert. This guy is not being alert. This is from verses 42 to 44 of chapter 24. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be alert. Be ready. I got a knock on the door of my house when I was in England before I came away. I had a house that was a side-by-side. It was a brick side-by-side, very thankfully, which you'll understand when I tell you the rest of the story. But at four o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on the door. And I went to open the door, and there's my neighbor, the other side of the side-by-side, in his boxer shorts, covered in soap suds. It's not something you see at four o'clock in the morning most days. I didn't know if I was dreaming. It wasn't a dream, it would have been a nightmare. Anyway, he's standing at the door, and so he said, help, help, help. And so I brought him in, what's going, my house is on fire. Well, the story was that he'd been watching the television on his couch with a cigarette, He'd gone to sleep, he'd woken up, figured he needed a bath to get himself back awake, got into the bath and left his cigarette smolding in the couch. When I ran around to the house, the whole thing was up in flames. The, uh, you know, it's a brick house, so it's like a kiln. Thankfully, it doesn't burn the outside. My house was fine. It was a little warm on the wall for a while, but it was fine. But his house was totally burnt down. You never know what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. I actually went into school the next day. I worked in a, in a school that wasn't a Christian school. We had Most of our kids weren't Christian kids. And I was so impacted by this, by what happened. I thought, you know, Jesus is coming. This could happen at any time. And I'd been uh, teaching in that school. There were 120 kids in assembly that morning. I asked to speak in assembly. Um, I told the story. And I felt the Lord give me one verse which was suffer the little children to come into me for as such is the kingdom of God. And you know, sometimes when you realize you're at the end of things, you kind of get bold. And I spoke to the staff and they were around the outside. Um, Some of them Christians, a lot of them not Christians. And I said, listen, you need to let the little children come to Jesus this morning if they want to come. And then I spoke to the kids and I told them this story and I said, you know, there's fire coming. There's fire coming and you need to know you're right with Jesus. And if you want to come to Jesus today, I want to lead you in a sinner's prayer. And they did it right there in a public school. Sixty kids put their hands up to receive Jesus that morning. I don't know how they've gone on or what. God moved me out here fairly soon after. But that's what happens when you realize, you know what? I need to be alert. I need to be awake. This could be the last day I see somebody. This could be the, this could be the last day I see family. We, we don't know. It doesn't mean you get all uptight and, and intense about the thing. But, it's, but be alert. Be awake. Because it could happen at any time. And Jesus said in one of his previous verses, he says this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed. Right? 
For this must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, be alert, be awake, but don't be alarmed. Don't get fearful. I don't know how many of you in the 70s or 80s saw the film, the Christian film, Thief in the Night. Anybody see that movie? Yes. I can still remember when, when I hear, uh, Randy likes to play the tunes every now and again at the back there. It still gives me shivers when he plays the tunes. I'm not sure that's why he does it. But anyway, the story is of a guy who um, he's asleep in bed. He wakes up in the morning to his alarm. He looks over and his wife's not in bed next to him. And then through the day, he realizes none of his Christian friends are around anymore because Jesus has taken them and he's been left behind. And the whole world clashes, crashes into this darkness and he's in the middle. It's a very scary movie. And you get to the end and you're all like this. I, I gave my life to Jesus like 10 times in the movie alone. It gets to the end of the movie and you're right on the edge of your seat. And then you realize it was all a dream. You see the guy lying in bed and you think, oh, hallelujah, it was all a dream. And then the thing pans out and the alarm goes off and he wakes up and he looks over beside him in his bed and his wife's not there. And you realize it wasn't a dream. It's going to happen to him. So you leave like this at the end of the movie. We're all shaking. You know, it's good to be aware of what's going to happen. But Jesus himself said, don't be alarmed. This world is going to get shaken to its very core. It will. Everybody wants world peace. It's not going to happen. Not until Jesus returns. This world is going to get shaken to its core. And when it gets shaken, people are going to get alarmed. They already are. They are. People are frightened of what's going on in our world and where it's going. And the Christians need to stand out, not because we're on our street corners saying the end is nigh and you're all going to hell, but because we are not alarmed. We're not shaken by it. Our God's in control. The scroll is in the hands of the Lamb. And the will of God is prospering in his hand. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus is doing great, whatever we might feel. Right? Amen. Be alert, don't be alarmed. The second story is an encouragement to be faithful. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Most of us don't end up beating our servants. But we can become lazy on issues of righteousness and careless in our actions. It's what happens when a teenager is left alone at home for the weekend. They think they've got three days before mum and dad come back. So they decide they're going to have their friends down and have a party. And they're having a great old time. But as the weekend goes on, they begin to get a little bit more rambunctious. And the person who's overseeing this or the, the kid in the home is thinking, well, it's okay because I've got three days for mum and dad to, to come back and clean up the mess. Until somebody knocks over Aunt Dora's priceless Ming vase and shatters it all over the floor. And you realize that no amount of glue can put this thing together again. And mum and dad are back tomorrow and there's no way now I'm going to be ready. But they thought they had time. 
They thought they had time to sort things out, but they didn't. They didn't. And Jesus is saying, be faithful as a servant of God. Don't get lazy in being a servant. God's called you to something and don't allow that to slip. You look in deeper into this. What had God called him to do? Well, he'd asked him to look after his servants and he wanted him to feed his servants. And so he probably did feed the servants. But over time, he kind of got a little bored with it. And This is a little tired, so you know I'm going to go down to the pub and have a little bit of drink. So he goes down to the pub, has a little bit to drink, and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And he's got a bit of an anger problem. And drink has a habit of bringing our problems out into the public. And so he comes home one day, and he's got a bit more anger. And some, one of his servants has said something wrong. And now he's angry with his servants. And he starts beating on his servant. And all of a sudden, he's doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus asked him to do. Jesus is saying to his disciples, be faithful. I've called you to something. Stick to it. Don't get discouraged. Don't get downhearted. And don't start thinking, oh, Jesus isn't going to come for a while yet. So, you know what, I'm going to start taking it easy. It's not going to matter what happens now. Start relaxing and, and then all of a sudden your, your righteousness starts to go and you, you're not watching over your devotions and you're not watching over your holiness and it all starts to drift away. And before you know it, you're, you're doing the opposite of what Jesus asked you to do. Be faithful, Jesus says. Be alert but not alarmed. Be faithful. And then he says, be prepared. This is the story of the ten virgins at the wedding who took their lamps, Jesus said, this is verses 1 to 13, and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. The bridegroom sometimes wouldn't come for a week. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. All the virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Do a little look through scripture at the door was shut. There's echoes there. Think Noah and the ark, and the door was shut. God shut the door in Noah's ark. And when he shut the door, it meant there was no time to choose a different course of action. Your choices have been made. The door is shut. There's going to come a time when the door will be shut. No more choice. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There it is again. You don't know when it's going to happen. So keep alert. Keep watching. Have you ever had that horrible feeling that you're not prepared for something? When you go into an exam, have you ever been into an exam and sat down and opened up the paper and gone, <gasps> when you read it, because there's not one question in there you know how to answer. You prepared everything wrong. Have you, probably never happened to anybody here. It gives me the shivers just thinking about it. It has happened to me. either because you prepared the wrong thing or you didn't prepare at all. Maybe you've done some acting and you've got up on stage and you suddenly realized, I can't remember a single line that I'm supposed to say. Some of you have had that experience too. Not being prepared is going to get you into trouble when you need to be able to move on with what God is asking you to do. 
And God is not talking when he says be prepared about going to the store and buying all the non-perishable goods you can and go and build a bomb shelter in your basement. That is not being prepared. That's not what God's talking about. Christians are not supposed to hunker down, protect themselves like, you know, we'll look after ourselves and let the world go to whatever. That's, That's not how we're supposed to be. Don't go and do that. That's not what it means. What he's talking about is having a lamp that is burning. Do you have a lamp that's burning? You still burning with love for Jesus? You still burning with passion for his kingdom, for his purpose, for what he's doing? Do you have fire in your lamp today? We used to sing an old song as kids in Sunday school. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. It's actually a good prayer. Because here's the thing. You can't borrow oil from somebody else's lamp. You can't borrow fire from somebody else's fire. You can't borrow a life in God from somebody else who has one. You have to have your own. Right? It's up to us to keep our own fire burning. And we can't blame somebody else. Oh, you know, so-and-so poured a bucket of cold water on so I'm not so hot for God anymore. Sorry. You're responsible for keeping your fire burning. And people do pour cold water on all of us. That's why we need each other to encourage each other and keep our fire stoked because it's not just about us, right? We, we encourage each other in those things. But let's keep our lamps burning. That's what Jesus is saying. When he's prepared, are your lamps burning? Don't get cold. You know, Jesus said this in Matthew twenty four twelve. Because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. What he means is we've got to be careful that the influence of the world doesn't cause our love for God and his passion for his purposes to cool off because it can happen. Just crowds around, you know, whatever it is. Fill your life out with a whole lot of other stuff and gradually, you know, you, your fire begins to go down. Jesus said, keep your lamp burning. Keep the fire burning. Be alert but not alarmed. Be faithful and be prepared. And then be diligent. Now this story is the story that Jesus tells about a man who gives three people different gifts. And he invests in them. Five talents, two talents, and one talent. Five talent guy goes out, invests it, earns five more. The two guy goes out, invests it, gets two more. The one guy goes out and buries his in the ground. Which is not as crazy as it sounds. Because in the ancient world, if you wanted to keep something safe, you buried it in the ground. It's what you did. Just remember where you put it. But it's no point leaving it in the house because it could get stolen. Right? And you could get invaded by some army. That you know These things happened all the time. So if you got something precious, they buried it in the ground. It's what they did. But here's what Jesus said to the guy who gave him an excuse when Jesus came back and he went down, he dug his one talent and he put it into Jesus' hands and, or into the master's hands and he said, Master, you delivered me uh, one talent. No, he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. As a statement. He didn't understand who God really was. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered those free seeds. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Wicked. 
you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Separation. Separation. Be diligent with what you're given. We can think of talents, and when we think of that, we think of abilities and whatever. That's not what the disciples would have thought. They understood a talent to be a weight, and it was a way that they weighed out the coins. And this talent, therefore, represented money, and actually an awful lot of money. Every talent was worth about 200 pounds of gold. That was 20 years worth of laborers' wages. 20 years. So even the guy who got one talent, don't ever think, oh, you know, the poor guy, he only got one talent. Only got one talent? He got 20 years' wages in one go. Right? That's a lot of money. So what was the problem with this guy? What was the problem with digging a hole and putting it into the ground and just leaving it? His money. Well, God said, I gave it to you to do something with it. Not just to stick it in the ground. I wanted you to invest it. And that's what this parable is really all about. Jesus is saying, I have made, God has made an investment in each one of us. He's invested something in every one of us. It it, it might be gifts and talents. It it may be uh, somebody said things to us over the years that shaped us in a certain way. And it's been an investment of Christ in us. Might have been some wisdom we received along the way. Jesus' question to his disciples is, what are you doing with that investment? Are you keeping it to yourself? Well, that's, that's great for me and it's helping me to, to grow and feel good. In other words, you've buried it. Or are you investing it in others? Are you taking what God has given and investing it into other people? Of course, the greatest investment we can receive from other people is to hear the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Because if you don't hear the good news of Jesus, how can people get saved if they don't hear? Right? And somebody, we're here because people have made an investment into us of the gospel. What are we doing with that investment? We were challenged by this last year as a a staff. So we were praying for opportunities. Lord, give us opportunities to share the gospel with people. Uh, There was a a couple here, actually Beatrice's uh, son, Phil, and wife, Andrea, part of the church here. And they came to me after a Sunday morning, or maybe it was Beatrice, came and said, you know, Andrea's dad has just discovered that he has a very serious type of brain cancer. Some of you may have heard this story if you've been to a prayer summit. And uh, so I immediately thought, well, you know, I'd love to talk to that person, but I don't know them at all. So I said to them, could you set up a meeting? Would, would, if ask this person if they wouldn't mind a pastor coming to talk. I know it's a bit weird. They've never met me before, but I want to talk to them because I don't know how long they've got to live. And so uh, they set it up for me to go and see them. And I went down to the house not knowing what I was going to expect. And I walked through the door and I was quite amazed because the man, Wayne, was there, husband, uh, Marlene. And they welcomed me like this long lost friend. I was thinking, how, how can you be so welcoming of somebody you don't know? And then I found out the rest of the story. 
They like to spend their time, a lot of it, in the Starbucks on Pemina Highway. And it so happens that they met another guy there who also had a Mazda Miata like they did and they got chatting and they enjoyed each other's company and they, over a period of time they got to know each other and this other person um, prayed with them and, and told them a little bit about Jesus. That other person happened to be my brother. And when I walked into their house it was like my brother had walked into the house. They were so welcoming. My brother's back in England. And so I had an open door. So I was able to say to Wayne, do you know where you're going when you die? He said, no. He said, can I tell you about Jesus? And he'd heard bits and pieces, but I shared the gospel with him that night. And I could see he was moved. So I said to him, do you want to receive Jesus right now? He said, yes. Tears running down his cheeks. So Phil and Andrea and Wayne and Marlene and myself held hands in his front room and prayed the sinner's prayer and he gave his life to Jesus. And he was transformed. He wanted to read the word. When he was going in and out of consciousness on his deathbed just a week or so ago, I was next to him and I was reading out of the Psalms and, and I, got to, um, I got into Romans 7. You know, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's <laughs> a great thing to read when, when someone's dying. So he's, he's sort of out of consciousness. And then I said, thanks be to God. You read the rest of it. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Into Romans 8. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he opened his eyes. And tears running down his cheeks. He said, is that true? I said, it's absolutely true. You're going to meet Jesus soon. And there will be no condemnation for you. Because you gave your life to Jesus at this moment in time. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. Don't put it off like you've got another day. Because you don't know that you have. If you were going to meet Jesus today, would you know him? Would he know you? You can put that right, right here and now this morning. Ken at the end is going to lead you in a prayer, give you an opportunity to pray. Just what Wayne prayed. Wayne went away to be with Jesus. We were um, sorting out what his funeral was going to be and I was talking to him about the scriptures we could read and I read a few of them to him and the one that resonated to me as I was reading and he agreed was John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. That was the scripture we were going to do. Beatrice had given Wayne a devotional book at Christmas. He read it every day when he could or had people read it to him. He loved it. And uh, so March 2nd of this year, he went away to be with Jesus. But guess what the devotional was that morning? I am the resurrection and the life. It's the last thing he heard from the scriptures before he went to be with Jesus. Isn't that incredible? We have such an investment of life in us. Right? Life-giving, resurrection, hopeful life for a world that's lost. What are we doing with the investment? What are we doing with the investment? Be alert but not alarmed. Be faithful, be prepared, be diligent, and finally, Be compassionate. Our world is going to get shaken to its core. We have people on our streets that are lawyers. Their world got shaken up. They got into crystal meth or they got into whatever. And they're on our streets. Very intelligent, well-educated people whose lives are broken. 
because people are scared. Right? It's the world we live in. How do we act as Christians? Well, we don't need to be alarmed, but here Jesus tells us at the end a lovely thing that we're able to do. And he tells the story about the sheep and the goats. And in that story, he talks about people who have seen, he said, you seen me when I was hungry and when I was thirsty and when I was naked and when I was a stranger and when I was in prison and you come and visited me. And they said, when did we do that, Lord? When did we come and visit you? And he says, in the way that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It's a story about Francis of Assisi. Before he was St. Francis, he was a very rich nobleman. He was riding his horse one day and he came across a poor man lying disfigured by leprosy on the side of the road. He felt moved to get off and give this man a hug. And as he gave the man a hug, the man's face changed into a picture of what Francis understood Jesus would look like. And he realized that as he was hugging this poor man, he was really hugging Jesus. Martin of Tours was a Roman soldier and a Christian. One freezing day, a beggar asked him for arms, for money. He had no money, but seeing the man was blue with cold, he tore his soldier's cloak in half. Goodness knows what the centurion would have thought of him when he got home. And he gave one half to this man that was absolutely freezing. And that night he had a dream. He saw Jesus in the courts of heaven wearing half his cloak. He heard an angel ask, Master, why are you wearing that battered old cloak? Who gave it to you? And Jesus replied, my servant Martin gave it to me. Those of you who serve in the food bank, you have served Jesus. Whatever you've done to the least of these brethren, you've done it to Jesus and he takes it personally. In his book on Matthew's gospel, Michael Green writes, in this, the last and most awesome of his parables, Jesus is holding up to us, and it was the last of the parables before he died that we have. Jesus holds up for us the pattern of practical Calvary-like love. There is nothing like it in the whole world. It's the supreme hallmark of the disciple of the kingdom. There is one test and one only of the extent of our love for Jesus. It's actually a very uncomfortable one. It's how have we treated the poor? As a church, we've done many great things over the years to bless the poor. God wants to increase that in us for our blessing as much as anybody else. But in this world that's being shaken, awaiting a return that they don't even know that's coming, many of them, people need to know there's a God who loves them and who cares for them and is going to do practical things to heal their brokenness. That's what's happening upstairs in the EAL classes. Many of those people, if they don't learn to speak English properly, they will never find a job that is compatible with the training that they have. They'll struggle. They'll struggle here. And we're giving them an opportunity. We're helping them. We're giving them a step up. Jesus thinks we're doing it for him. Because we are. Be alert, but not alarmed. Be faithful. Carry out the call of God. Don't get lazy in carrying out the call of God on our lives. Be prepared. Keep the fire of the life of God in us alive. 
Be diligent, using what God has invested in us, particularly the sharing of the gospel, because it has to go to the ends of the earth, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has for us. And be compassionate to this world. Overflowing with our self-sacrificing love. There's no higher calling. Even the humblest of disciples can do it. And it's the greatest way to pave the way for people to receive the good news of Jesus. In AD 70, the trumpet sounded at the gates of Jerusalem. Titus had been trying to get his way in and he couldn't get in. It was a tumultuous time in the Roman Empire. They actually thought the Romans themselves, without anything to do with Jesus, thought the world was coming to an end. They went through four Caesars in one year. And the thing that sort of rallied them was Titus breaking into Jerusalem. And he wasn't getting in. And so he decided one day he was just going to get all his forces together. He was going to blow his trumpets and he was going to smash through that gate and see what happened. And that's exactly what he did. He broke into Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. He shattered the temple. He murdered probably a million Jews. It was horrible. The whole siege was horrible. The breakdown. When those people saw it happen, those disciples... And they remembered what Jesus said to them on the Mount of Olives. They would have remembered the context of what he was speaking about. One day the trumpets are going to sound again. Jesus isn't going to have to shatter the doors down. They'll be swung wide open for him. And he will come and visit this earth. Are we ready? Are we ready? And what are we doing to help people around us prepare for his coming? Because it could happen in our lifetime and it could happen soon do you believe that it could it really could lord make us ready